Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Prairie College up in Canada. We talked about her recent book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters that recently came out with IVP. We'll talk about what does it mean to bear God's name and what does that mean throughout the scriptures and throughout biblical theology? What does that mean for how we think about the bigger story of scripture? I also joke that she is my boss at the Institute for Biblical Research as I uh, co-direct the Biblical Theology Group, and she is the main point of contact and serves uh, so many people so well at IBR in the uh, work that she does there. And so we're thankful for her doing that and thankful for our conversation today. I hope you'll enjoy it. As always, Church Grammar is brought to you by B&H Academic. Check out bhacademic.com to find out about their latest offerings. That includes uh, Christian Theology, The Biblical Story, and Our Faith from Christopher Morgan with Robert Peterson, a good introduction to systematic theology. They also just recently released Baptists in the Christian Tradition, edited by Christopher Morgan, as well as Matthew Emerson and Luke Stamps, looking at Baptists and how uh, we can interact with the great tradition of the church, which is something you've heard us talk about a lot on this podcast. Our other sponsor is the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. And now, my conversation with Carmen Imes. But first, no big deal. here by Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. I feel like uh, you're kind of like my boss because uh, uh, me and Stephen Presley uh, run an IBR uh, research group together, and you're always uh, emailing us, asking us for uh, updates and giving us rules <laughs> on what we can and can't do. So I feel like in some way you're like my IBR boss. So I have a little fear and trepidation here. I have the here. power. That's right. Yeah. I have the power. <laughs> the, the unlimited power of, of IBR uh, session planning. So. What it actually is, is that I was gullible enough to say yes to a job that is extremely tedious. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do do the volunteer work behind the scenes to get the program yep, all put together. Do it. Well, so. you're, you're the real hero, you know. <laughs> Lynn, Lynn Kohick gets to be the face of the organization, but you're the real hero, right? So, <laughs> Well, well I, I enjoy, I, my favorite part about it is getting to interact with so many different scholars all over the all over the world, really, and yeah. hear about what research they're pulling in. So it's, I feel like I have a front row seat to seeing some really good scholarship happening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you had a new book with IVP uh, that came out mm-hmm. called Bearing God's Name. Uh, I got, I was telling you, I just, I got it uh, in the mail from IVP, um, you know, they'll send stuff along, um, you know, for review or whatever. And uh, sure. I saw it in, in some of the work I'm doing just on the Trinity uh, in the New Testament, particularly uh, seeing anything with the name of Yahweh on it, it just kind of piques my interest. And so mm-hmm. um, I opened it, I was like planning to look through it and then ended up just reading it um, because it, nice. it really is so well written. And so, um, but this came out of, of dissertation work that you did first, right? So that was kind of where the, the beginning is. So talk through a little bit. You, you published your dissertation, Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, a reexamination of the name command of the Decalogue. And so, you know, yeah. obviously uh, oftentimes the, the name command in the Decalogue is sort of, interpreted as, um, you know, what not to do with Yahweh's name, right? And what, what you can right. and can't How not do. to say it, when yeah. not to say it, 
Yeah. Whereas, and, and you're kind of saying, hey, there's like a lot more here than that, right? Both both con concretely and metaphorically, there's a lot more going on here. Yep. So talk through kind of the thesis there, yeah. that passage, and uh, how you work through that in your dissertation. Yeah, I my dissertation is a full-length examination of that command from every possible angle. I first looked at the history of interpretation uh, to see how has this command been read. I found evidence of 23 distinctly different interpretations of the command that spanned history. Um, but of course, the most common was not to take false oaths in God's name. Uh, so not to use Yahweh's name to authorize an oath for which you don't plan to follow through or the oath itself is problematic in some way. That's probably the biggest interpretation um, in scholarly circles. In popular circles, people think that the command is prohibiting saying God's name as a swear word. Yeah. Like, you know, you're you're walking across the kitchen carrying a bowl of fruit salad and you trip and it smashes on the floor and all the fruit, you know, spills out and you say, ah, you know, yeah. God damn it or something like that's yeah. what you're not supposed to say. And that's what the command is telling you not to say. I mean, who among um, us hasn't broken that command at least once, Carmen? I mean, let's be honest, you know. So. <laughs> right. So, so what's interesting to me is that that is far and away the most common way that that lay people read it, whereas scholars, almost all scholars would agree, yeah, ancient people aren't dumb enough to use God's name in that way. Like they understand that deities have power yeah. and they're not they're not going to want to be on the wrong side of the deity. So that's not, that can't be what's being prohibited at Sinai. I wanted to go back and see if there was a, a another possible way to read it. And I got this idea from Dan Block, who was my doctoral mentor at Wheaton College. He suggested that the command has been mistranslated and that really it should be understood as an, injun an injunction not to misrepresent Yahweh, that the people of God bear his name, and so they're not to bear it in vain, they're not to misrepresent him. So the Hebrew is, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And most interpreters through history have understood lift up to be like shorthand for some way of speaking the name. Mm -hmm. And Dan Block said, no, I think it's actually talking about carrying God's name. And so I wanted to fully examine that. So I looked at, um, after looking at the history of, of interpretation, I did a chapter where I examined each of the words, you know, studying the word Shem, name, Nasa, lift up, Shav, which is in vain. Um, and and trying to figure out if I could see the range of meaning for the word and what what are our options in terms of how to understand it. Mm -hmm. And then I spent some time looking at the literary context of the Decalogue itself and then how the Decalogue is internally structured, how it flows. And then I delved into conceptual metaphor theory, which was new for me. Um, and it was a it was a fun exploration, learning how metaphors work in language in general and how much of our speech is actually infused with metaphors. I just used one right now. Um, infused. That we, right. We think, we think in metaphors and those, those metaphors shape the way we think and so they shape what we say. There's probably all sorts of metaphorical language going on right now based on the COVID pandemic. Um you know, we we think about i we we talk about ideas spreading almost like germs spread and they're <laughs> passed from one person to the other. So we use we use pandemic kind of um, imagery or metaphors to talk about other things like ideas. 
And and so what I what I discovered is that with the name command, that God is communicating to his people using the language of branding or tattoos in order to shape this. This is what I think is going on with the name command, that that he's um evoking a very common cultural practice of tattooing slaves with the name of their owner. And you you get this with temple slaves, um, say for the goddess Ishtar, they would have the symbol of Ishtar tattooed on their hand or on their face to show that they belonged to her and they were in her service. And so that Yahweh is drawing on this same idea of, of a slave being tattooed with the name of its owner or branded and that that is a symbol of their belonging to him. So at Sinai, he calls them into covenant with himself. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Because you belong to me, please live in such a way that other people can see what I'm like. So if I'm right, this command is way broader than the church has usually understood it. It's not um, like a little governor on our mouth and what comes out of our mouth. It actually influences everything we say, Mm -hmm. um, everything we do, the way we work, the way we drive, the way we treat people, all of that is a feature of how we bear Yahweh's name. So would you say then that the translation, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain, uh, is it the translation you think that is that is um, driving this sort of false interpretation? Like, should it be interpreted differently? Or do you think it's uh, just that the interpretation's fine, but the meaning of the interpretation is what we're missing? Yeah, I think the translation is unfortunate just because it's been there so long. We've so, for such a long time, we've associated it with a a faulty interpretation that it's hard for us to separate it now from that language. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine um, not taking Yahweh's name in vain in the way that I've just described what I think it actually means. That is, not don't receive Yahweh's name as a brand upon yourself and wear that in vain. So it kind of still works with take. But the problem is taking the name in vain has for so long meant something else that I think it's a little bit more difficult to rewire our brains to hear it in a different way than it would be to just retranslate the verse and say, you shall not bear Yahweh's name in vain. Mm -hmm. Then then you'd have to, because we don't talk about bearing names at all. So then you'd have to stop and think about what is that (laughs) metaphor doing? Uh, It must, you know, when do we bear names? And I think that we have, a sample or an example of what this is like right in the the narrative context of that command. The high priest is wearing garments that have been specially designed for him to do his job. And on his person, he's wearing the names. He's bearing, actually, the same word is used to describe how he's bearing the names of the 12 tribes on his breast piece. And then he's also carrying Yahweh's name on his forehead and says, holy belonging to Yahweh on his forehead. So we actually have a visual model of what's going on with the whole nation right there with the high priest in Exodus 28, 29. Um, so I think we don't have to look very far to see what that might be like. Hmm. Okay, so then uh, in bearing God's name, why Sinai still matters, you sort of expand this out into sort of a full kind of biblical theology, for lack of a better word, of bearing yes. God's name. And like yes. I said, I mean, you take all this really good research and you turn it into something that is still scholarly rigorous, uh, but really, really well written. You know, it's got a, it's definitely got a church, uh, you know, aspect to it to where a pastor could mm-hmm. read it and really make it, it really be useful. And you had said yeah. that this was basically started out of a chapter that, uh, that your supervisor thought was too churchy <laughs> that was taken out, uh, which, you know, yeah. that's part of, that's part of it. You know, I, I get feedback from, from my supervisor on, Hey, save that for the gospel coalition. That's not for a dissertation, you know, type thing. Right. So, so we hear right. that stuff all sometimes. Those, so 
Yeah. All the way through the dissertation, they kept reminding us, you know, our mentors kept reminding us, you are not writing this for your parents. (laughs) You are writing this for other scholars. Don't try to lower your diction so that a wide audience can understand it. Speak precisely, Mm -hmm. use precisely the scholarly language that best articulates what you need to get across. And you can think about re-communicating this later to a wider audience. And all the way through the project, I kept thinking this message needs to get out there. Mm -hmm. This can't be something that only 200 people in the world ever read who are scholars and can read Hebrew. Every Christian needs to know this. Every Christian needs to understand that our vocation is to represent God. We bear his name in the world. And so, for me, it was a fire in my bones. I had to write this other book for the church. And it's been tremendously satisfying, exciting. Um, it's it's actually far exceeded my expectations how many pastors and churches are reading it. There's a pastor in Idaho who did a sermon series going through my book. He actually did a 10-week series where every s- sermon for 10 weeks was on the next chapter of the book. That's awesome. Um And there's a church in South Carolina that's also gone through the book together. There's um, Sunday school groups, small groups who are going through it together. And and a wide range of people are are getting really excited again about the Old Testament. So that's super gratifying. Yeah. Well, anytime. And that's the thing, you know, part of it is, you know, I was uh, in pastoral ministry uh, for almost 10 years. And um, you do have, I think, generally sort of people trying to figure out the Old Testament is really big and really disparate. Let me just read Paul's letters because that makes sense to me and it's clear. Yeah. And there's so much depth and richness to the Old Testament and, of course, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament and carries along themes. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that this exists, uh, if nothing else, like you said, to get people to actually understand their Old Testaments better and be excited about mm-hmm. it. So, yeah. uh, so what are you doing in this book? What's kind of the, the extension of what we just talked about? What are you doing in this book? Yeah, I'm trying to recover the value of the Old Testament for the church. I'm taking people back to Sinai to show them this is not a dead, dry, awful thing that happens to Israel in the wilderness, but this is actually really exciting. The God of the universe is calling a people into being, and he's calling them into relationship with himself. We tend to have a very negative view of Old Testament law as evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, The law has had a very bad rap for a very long time. Um, I'm I'm following in the footsteps of my mentor, Dan Block, in saying the law is a gift. This is God's gracious invitation to his people to, to learn how to live in a way that will honor him. And he he is, instead of making them guess and check what he wants, he's actually communicating to them what he wants. He's telling them exactly how to approach him. He's coming to dwell in their midst. And so the law at Sinai is tremendously good news. You don't see Moses apologizing for the law. Mm-hmm. You see him in you know Deuteronomy chapter four, he says, when other nations get a load of this law, they are going to be so jealous. <laughs> They're not going to be, you know, back in their homes thinking, phew, I'm so glad I'm not an Israelite. Like, can, have you heard what they have to do? Their God is so demanding. Mm-hmm. That's not what it is. The people at Sinai before and after the law is given, given, say very freely and of one accord, everything Yahweh has said we will do. They are on board. They want they want in on this agreement. So it's good news. And I think the reason it matters that we see it as good news is because this is where Israel's identity and vocation is defined. This is where they discover who God has created them to be and what their job is in the world. And I don't believe that we as Christians can truly know our vocation 
and our identity without going back to Sinai, because through Jesus, we have been incorporated into this same covenant. So if we've been accustomed to reading the Old Testament law as a prerequisite for salvation, Mm -hmm. like this is all the stuff that Israelites had to do in order to be saved, but we don't need to do any of that stuff because we have Jesus and we have grace, then we have completely misunderstood the Old Testament law. God saves them before he gives them the law. Mm. He brings them out of Egypt, redeems them for himself, and then tells them how to live. And if the law is how to live after you've been saved, not how to get saved— then suddenly we should be paying more attention to it. Obviously, it's in a different cultural context. We can't like just you know take it across and slap it on our lives in the same way. But it is instructive for us in what are the sorts of categories that matter to God. What are the ways? What are ways we might live out our faith in in our context? Yeah. So one of the ideas that you bring up in the book that I think is really helpful is this idea of uh, the covenant that God makes as a vocation. So, and mm-hmm. kind of this kind of building on what you're saying right now. So, so as Israelites, and then even as Christians, looking back on this, how does this uh, role of God's covenant? Because a lot of times we think of covenant as uh, follow me and I'll bless you. Uh, don't follow yeah. me and I'll curse you. And that's like what a covenant is. And obviously, there's yeah. a lot more to it. So, how does how does vocation play into that? Yeah, what you just described is such an individualistic reading of covenant and sort of a self-serving reading of it. And I'm trying to recover the vocational dimension of it. So we could go all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and see that, yes, he's promising him descendants. Yes, he's promising him land. Yes, he's promising blessing. But Abram is also going to be blessed so that through him, all nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a super important dimension of the covenant God is not giving up on the rest of creation and saying, okay, fine, I'm going to scrap the rest of this. I'll just hang out with one family. No, he wants that family to be the conduit of his blessing to all nations. This is the rescue plan. This is the redemption plan through which God is going to make all things new again. And so we see seeds of it there with Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, but then we see it coming into full flower, I think, at Sinai. When the people arrive at Sinai, the first speech they hear from Yahweh in chapter 19 of Exodus is is calling them God's treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So he's letting them know from the outset that they their new identity is going to be expressed in relation to the nations. Who? Why would you need a kingdom of priests? Priests mediate between God and humans. So if the whole kingdom is a kingdom of priests, who are they mediating between? I would say God and the nations. Mm. That's part of their vocation. And then the, the phrase treasured possession is my favorite Hebrew word, segala, which I wrote my master's thesis on. And to be a segala, it's, this is not God just thinking up something really nice to say about them to make them feel better about themselves. This is actually a technical covenant term. It's used in other treaty contexts to indicate a treasured or esteemed vassal of a suzerain. So in a suzerain vassal treaty, the the vassal that has the the greatest trust and um, responsibility entrusted to them by the by the great king. So so that they could represent that king if the king had to be away. So God is telling Israel at Sinai, you are my representatives. You mediate my rule and my blessing to all nations. Mm -hmm. So that's huge. That's way more than here's a list of do's and don'ts. Please behave so I can bless you. 
it's there. He's asking them to step into a new pair of sandals to say, we are now Yahweh's representatives among the nations. And, and therefore, everybody else is going to find out what Yahweh is like by watching us. And that's why it matters how we dress and how we plow our fields and how we, how, how we interact with other people and how our family systems work and how we treat people. That's why it matters because everybody's watching us. So, so to, to recover this idea of vocation at Sinai totally transforms our idea of faith from being something private and personal to being something corporate and missional. Mm. It isn't just about me and Jesus and where am I going to go when I die. It's about what is the job to which he's called me now. And how can I live into that, lean into that? Yeah. And so it, it reminds me just as you're talking of, you know, like Leviticus 19, when, when a stranger wanders in, how do you treat them? Right. You don't say mm-hmm. we're Israel, get out, but yeah. rather, you know, th- you're supposed to love them and care for them because you are a light yes. to the nations. And then yes. of course, Jesus picks this up, uh, in a million different ways, whether it's the woman at the, at the well or the good Samaritan mm-hmm. or, you know, the way that he continues to to push this idea that, hey, loving God and loving neighbor is actually what the law is about, which is very similar yeah. to what you're saying, right? Like this, the yeah. law is meant as this sort of vocation for you to go be a blessing to the world. Yes. And, and now there is a difference in the Old Testament expression of this and then the expression of this after Jesus' ascension. Sure. Primarily in the Old Testament, it's a come and see what Yahweh is like, not a go and tell. The go and tell doesn't happen until, you know, Jesus begins sending his disciples to go and tell. And then after his ascension, he commissions them to to go do this now full time. So there is a a different sense. um, It's not like they're going out as missionaries, but they are supposed to live in such a distinctive way that the other nations can watch they can tremble in awe of Yahweh as God. They can be like Rahab in Joshua chapter 7, where she she's heard the stories of what Yahweh has done to deliver these people. She knows Yahweh is on their side, and she understands that the most important choice she can make is to cross, to cross those enemy lines and join that people because they are the ones that God is backing. And so, and so she does, and she expresses her faith in really profound ways. She, she professes such a strong awareness of what God has done and who God is. And it's all just by watching. Mm-hmm. She's just been watching and listening. Yeah, so when you talk about, um, you know, the gospel witness and um, this idea that it is a, a sending type thing, you know, so it mm-hmm. doesn't affect our ethics and, and our daily life. And I think that's really, yeah. that's actually a really helpful distinction there of, you know, even when, when it bring up Leviticus 19, it, it's how do you uh, interact with those who come upon you or come into your camp versus Jesus yeah. saying like, now go do it everywhere else. Um, yeah. You know, what, what is the connection there even between, you know, the, the be fruitful, multiply and the image of God and how that is spread across the earth? Like, how does that for you kind of all play together? Because it all sounds to me like, uh, yeah. You know, he said it's not a plan B, like God has been doing this since the garden in some sense, right? But yeah. how would you yep. uh, work through some of that? Yeah, it, that's a question I'm asked really often, so I'm glad you've asked it. Um, how does being the image of God relate to bearing the name of God? And I see the two concepts as related, but not the same thing, mm-hmm. in that every human being is the image of God, regardless of their covenant status. Only those who've who've expressed you know, speaking in New Testament terms, express faith in Jesus as the Messiah and have surrendered their lives to him are those who bear God's name. So it's not it's not true. You know, if you ha- have a neighbor who is not a believer, they it's impossible for them to take God's name in vain because they don't they don't bear his name, so they can't bear it in vain. Mm-hmm. Right. But they are the image of God, and that is expressed 
for better or for worse, in the way that they steward their resources and the way they steward the planet. So I, the way I see it, God has made all humans as his image in order to be, I see the image functioning as a representational role as well. So humans represent the creator God to the rest of creation. They mediate his rule. They're supposed to fill the earth and subdue it, bring order to it, maintain order, care for for what God has made. But because they decide to rebel and do things their own way, they don't image God well. Mm -hmm. They haven't lost the image. The image hasn't been destroyed. They're just not imaging very well. And so God takes the family of Abraham through whom he's going to bless all nations so that they can be restored to that role that they were always meant to have um, of imaging God well. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm just beginning work on a prequel to Bearing God's Name that I hope we can call Being God's Image mm. that will sort of flesh out the differences between being the image and bearing the name because I think we can learn a lot as we look at the image of God about what does it mean to be human and then to set that alongside, what does it mean to be the covenant people in yeah. relation to that? I think I think that will give it a little bit more depth. Yeah. Well, that I mean, if it's anything like bearing God's name, I'm excited about it. So I'm glad, cool. glad to hear that. Um, yeah. Okay. So your last chapter, you talk about. Uh, I love I love the titles of your chapters too. You do. They're just you know, um, you know, uh, striking out from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. You know, just give me Jesus, the gospel witness. I like the way you do that. But uh, my favorite yeah. uh, chapter title is Who Let You In. Gentiles and the mission mm-hmm. of God. So talk through, you know, okay, so we're talking about Yahweh, we're talking about Israel, we're talking about Christ as the Messiah of Israel, and you know, all those kind of things are very Jewish. How do yeah. you work through the Gentile mission now that it's kind of going out? Because obviously, this is clearly in the yes. New Testament, you don't need a PhD to know that this is a problem in the New Testament and a question, right? right. So what are we going to do with the Gentiles? Yeah. There, there are these people and they want to follow Jesus. How does that work? Um, yeah, in that chapter, I spend time in Acts chapter 15, um, and and Acts 9 and 10, where Peter has his vision of the sheet of animals lowered from heaven. He's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And that, that inaugurates a series of events in which he discovers that God is actually changing the game a bit. And that Gentiles are going to be invited into the covenant as Gentiles. They won't have to convert first to become Jews. What I find utterly fascinating about that the series of passages is that when the early church leaders meet together in Acts 15 to decide how to work this out in practice, do they need to be circumcised? What are we going to do with these Gentiles? They appeal to Amos chapter 9, verse 12, in order to make the case that God has always had a plan to take covenant people from the Gentiles. And they and Amos specifically says, a people for his name from the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. So it even uses name language, bearing the name language to describe Gentile inclusion. Now, Amos is looking ahead to a day when God will do that, that God's got people out there who are not Jews, who bear, who bear or are going to bear his name. He's looking ahead to that day. And James says to those gathered in Acts chapter 15, this is what this is what Amos was talking about. Mm-hmm. These Gentiles who are believing in Jesus, those are the Gentiles who bear God's name. And then that connects in with the book of First Peter. So if we take it that Peter the apostle wrote it, and Peter is the same guy who had these visions, it shouldn't be surprising to see that in in the in the letter of First Peter, he is taking titles that belonged 
solely to the Israelites at Sinai, only to the covenant people, and he is applying them to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. So in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he calls them a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Mm -hmm. And it's just a fascinating um, moment in which Peter says, you Gentile believers are now part of the family of faith. You're part of the covenant. And this is one reason why I think it's so important for us to go back to Sinai is because Peter is using Sinai titles to describe Christians. So then we better understand what those titles mean and to understand that we need to go back to Sinai. So what would you say then, um, you know, one of the big questions that comes out of this, of course, is the way Paul talks about the law, the way he (laughs) compares, um, you know, certain um, functions of the law or certain uh, practices of the law uh, on the one hand, he, he you know he tells the Corinthians, "Hey, if somebody doesn't want to eat meat, don't give them a hard time about it." Right? Like we, there's freedom yeah. there. Uh, at the other times, he says things like the law was meant to expose your sin, you know, and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So, so how do mm-hmm. you work? How do you sort of uh, bring together this idea that on the one hand, the law is not binding, but at the same time, the law is not just like abolished. Right? Jesus said, "I came to fulfill, right. not to abolish." So, how do you work through some of the yeah. just the major categories there? Um, you know, I'm not a Pauline scholar, but here's how I here's what I see when I read Paul. I see him saying things like the law is holy and righteous and good. Mm-hmm. I see Jesus saying things like, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's not sweeping it aside. He's actually raising the bar in some cases. Um, so I see Paul and Jesus saying positive things about the law. Paul also has negative things to say about the law. So in order to reconcile those things together, um, I, I think there's a couple of different factors to consider. One, he's not speaking, he's not writing an abstract doctrinal treatise. He's talking to real people in real situations, and he's addressing problems in those congregations. So there are very likely distortions of how they understand the Sinai law that he is trying to undo. Mm. I don't think he's saying Sinai in its pure form was a big problem. I think actually if if Moses and Paul got together and talked about the law, I think they would totally be on the same page. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Um, but obviously he's saying some things that sound harsh about the law. Again, responding to abuses in his own context, very likely referring to ways that they have misunderstood and mistreated or misappropriated the law treated it as a means to salvation rather than as the gracious gift of a God who saved them already. I think also there may be a problem with language here. So when we when we say law and we're referring to the Old Testament, we're talking about the Torah. And the, the word Torah is broader than just law. It's instruction. I, I'd rather translate it instruction. So there's instruction given at Sinai, which sounds a little less legislative than law. By the time you get to New Testament times, by the time you get to 300 BC and you enter the Hellenistic age, there is a more legalistic view of law that's developing. And when Paul talks about namas, I'm not sure that he's always meaning Torah when he says namas. I don't think the two are totally equated in his mind. So those are the issues to work through. I have a short section of my book where I try to work through um, how do we respond or understand Paul and the law, and then a section on Hebrews, because Hebrews also has some negative things, mm-hmm. some apparently negative things to say about the law that I that I try to work through and show how they're not contradictory to the, the thesis I'm advancing, which is that Sinai still matters, I, and I think it does. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, one, one of the things, the ways that I've uh, taught it uh, to my students and in church is, you know, Matthew 5, Jesus is clearly reenacting mm-hmm. the Sinai scene. 
at least in my, mm-hmm. in my interpretation. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, and he's saying things like, you've heard it, would say, it said, don't murder. Uh, but I tell yeah. you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him already. So Jesus yes. is not abolishing, but rather telling you, hey, you guys are misusing and misunderstanding it. You think because you haven't murdered anybody, you're fine. And let me tell you that yeah. there's more to it. So, so yes. how do you work through some of that idea? You know, you've got the, like, kind of the spirit and the letter of the law, for back, lack of a better word. Yeah, I think um, what I think what Jesus is doing is completely brilliant. He's he's up on a mountain and he's teaching, and of course the book of Matthew is structured in five blocks of teaching, presenting Jesus in in light of the Torah. Lots of people talk about Jesus being a new Moses. Mm-hmm. See, he's going up on the mountain and teaching the law just like Moses did, and I want to like scream, "No, he is not a new Moses. He's Yahweh." Yeah, Moses does not come down from the mountain and say let me tell you a thing or two about how this works. (laughs) No, he just passes along whatever God says to him. Jesus comes along and he says, I tell you. He's speaking with an authority that Moses never had. And so I don't think we're supposed to think Moses. I think we're supposed to think Yahweh Mm -hmm. when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The other thing that comes to mind is that as Jesus is teaching through, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He's continually bringing people back to the heart and spirit of the law as it was expressed at Sinai. I don't think he is transmuting it in a way that, um, you know, well, it used to be just all about external things, but now it's about your heart. I think he's addressing their, again, their distortion of the law, their misunderstanding of the law as saying, yeah, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm basically okay. Um, and saying, no, it's it's a hard issue. But I think if we go back to the Decalogue, we can see that it was always a hard issue. Yeah. Because what is the last commandment? You shall not covet. How do you enforce that <laughs> command? It's a heart issue. You're not supposed to want what belongs to someone else, whether it be their house or their wife or their or their servants or their anything that belongs to them. So that is a that's intrinsic to the Decalogue is this heart issue. And I think he's reading all the commands through that lens and saying it's never been about being able to enforce something legislatively. It's always been about your your heart standing before God. And Jesus wants to call them back to that. And do you think it's fair um, to say that uh, the Pharisees and or Sadducees were applying it that way? I mean, they're obviously demonized probably more than they should be at times. But do you think that does it does a lot of that come into play through the Pharisaical school and the way that they're applying these things? That's how I understand it yeah. to be happening. Uh, I'm not an expert on first century forms of Judaism, but that's that's how I see it playing out, that Jesus is saying, you have made this way too small. You know, you're just trying to tick all the boxes, and actually I'm calling you to a generous and faithful way of living that's far beyond anything you've known. Yeah, and I love the way he interacts with the Pharisees, uh, particularly like Nicodemus in John 3, where he's like, aren't you a teacher of the scripture? Shouldn't you know this already? You know, it's always like, yeah. like you guys yeah. have missed it, and you should, you're uh, the ones that should know this. The Good Samaritan story, you think the priest is the hero, you think the Levite's the hero. No, yeah. you know, the Samaritan's the hero. Like, you've just totally right. missed this whole thing. Right. So how do you yeah. um, how do you play out? Okay, so just some kind of to, to um, add some application here at the end, although you've done that a lot throughout. Um what what is a word, two or three words to Christians that you would say um, bearing God's name in our culture, in the world that we live in? What does that actually look like? What are some practical, clear kind of not just like uh, practical? Here's some things to do, but just like the heart posture and the vision of how you view your neighborhood, how you view your church in light of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I hope that Christians stop seeing their faith as a personal, private thing, 
but but recognize how public it is and how much it matters that they're living it out and walking it out in faithful ways. And so, um, yeah, there isn't any area of life that's untouched by our faithfulness and our obedience. We're not obeying so that God will like us. We're obeying because it's the vocation he's given us to demonstrate to the world what he's like. There's no higher calling than that. And it can be worked out in any any vocation at all. I often use the hashtag best job in the world <laughs> on Facebook because I truly believe I have the best job in the world. But here's my here's my like pro secret that I don't usually talk about. And that is, I don't think I have the best job in the world because I get to teach Bible all the time. I have the best job in the world because I'm personally wired to do this. Like mm. it's, it's, it's a way in which I can exercise the gifts and skills and interests that I have. But somebody out there listening might have a completely different skill set. My mom, for example, is a seamstress and an artist. She exercises her gifts by making purses for girls in Africa so that when they reach puberty, they don't have to stop going to school. Mm. You know, she's part of this whole movement of, of trying to keep girls in school in Africa. And she does that by sewing purses. These days, she's also sewing masks so that her neighbors and friends and family and and local workers can be safe during this pandemic. And now my dad's pitched in and he's helping sew too. He's like cutting elastic and measuring for her. Um, you know, it's, it's a group effort. That is the best job in the world because it's what my mom is wired to do, to see a need and to see creatively how she might contribute. You know, she could quite happily, she's a homebody, she could quite happily be at home and let the world go on, but she senses a calling to make a difference, a calling to be a light, and so she pitches in in the way that she's wired to do. Um, you know, I write books, she makes purses, but we both have the best job in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, it is one of those things of, of there's not a, a higher or lower calling when it comes to right. your job Absolutely or your gifts. Not. Yep. Yeah, bearing God's name is the high calling, <laughs> being, being mm-hmm. his representatives right. to people. Right. I mean, my, my dad's a, a remodeling contractor. He's retired now, but he's spent many years inside people's homes remodeling kitchens and bathrooms. And he is really excellent at what he does. He's very honest about it. And people trust him in their homes. He has the best job in the world. Yeah. They know when they, when they ask him to remodel their house, they're not going to get a work crew that's slinging around bad language and leaving trash everywhere and listening to raunchy radio shows. Like that's not, that's not how my dad works. He, he works with honor. He, he works with humor. He engages in their lives and gets to know their families. And so he's been invited to weddings. There were people at at our wedding who were customers of my dad's. (laughs) He remodeled their kitchen and they came to our wedding. Like that's the kind of relationship he has with his customers. He has the best job in the world because he's doing what he's really good at but he's doing it in a way that honors God so that there's a difference in how he remodels a kitchen over against how somebody else might remodel a kitchen. Yeah. Um, so whatever it is you are wired to do, do it as unto the Lord. Yeah. That's good. Well, thanks so much for hopping on. I'm thankful for your ministry, yeah. thankful for uh, this book, and looking forward to uh, the next book, hopefully. Some, I'm, I'm sure somebody will take it. I'm sure somebody will pick it up, so I'll be, I'll be happy to read it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's been fun to talk.